Well, I'm sure you all are so very aware we are on the eve of the presidential debate. Exactly. Yes, tomorrow night, Hofstra somewhere, I think on Long Island, those two titans of politics will square off in what is sure to be It's just sure to be. That's about all I know. <laughs> it is a crazy year whenever there's a presidential election, uh, but this year has been particularly interesting. Well, that's a safe, is interesting a safe word? That's the safest, safest. safest word, okay. The, the front three rows think it's safe. <laughs> the rest of you will have to figure it out. Uh, and, and I'm always amazed that when you think about it, not the politics. So if you're here waiting for my political bent, you're not going to get it. Um, but this is what gets me. These candidates and the parties and the PACs will spend hundreds of millions of dollars. A lot of money. To get a job that pays what? Two hundred fifty thousand. Four hundred thousand now. They got to raise. That's true. Football. Hey, now let's not go to Medlin. Yes, they did. I have lost control, and I just started. Let us open our Bibles. <laughs> That's the safest way to go from here. Now we're gonna. I, I started that. Bec I started with that because in this year, there's a lot of focus on on the presidency, on on politics, on power, on finding that or achieving that office, that place of prominence. The leader of the free world is the person who occupies that office is often called, and and even beyond the political sphere. There is a drive in most of us to achieve some things. There is the desire to push and to, to be successful, to have influence. I've talked before about this thing I call church world, that that definitely exists among us who lead churches, that, that push and that drive to be well thought of, to be respected, to be admired, to be invited to the right places, to be given that speaking engagement. Whatever the mark of success or achievement in a particular field is, most people in that field at least dream of that, whether the realistic possibility of achieving it is there or not. And then when we think about that, it, it's almost in opposition to some of the things that we see in Scripture, particularly as it involves the person of Jesus. And I want to start today... Um, a series that I don't know how long I'm going to go with, but basically I've, I've got 17 different titles for it. There may even be a graphic up there. Just ignore it because I don't like it anymore. That was Thursday. It's Sunday. I'm over that now. But, but basically the idea that I want to convey over the next period of time is we who follow Christ Jesus are called to, let's say, an upside-down kind of life. And we live in a world that fights against that. And, and 
we might think, you know, maybe it's the symptom of our modern age, maybe it's the symptom of the media age, the symptom of the things that are out there that we can access so much, and, and we have this idea and this training that we can pursue, but this desire to be something, to be somebody, to be of influence or power or wealth or whatever the, the quality might be goes way back, and in fact, we see it crop up among the people closest to Jesus, and we're going to look at that episode. It might be a, a story you're familiar with. It's in the book of Matthew, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Let me see. Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to start, and we're going to go lots of places. I think this kind of, this passage is going to set the tone for what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks, but today, as we get to the end of it, we're going to chase a trail of a particular phrase, a particular title of Jesus himself that's instructive to us, I think. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, we get this account. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, ask a favor of him. That's quite a picture, right? If you want something done, ask your mama. Mama loves you more than anybody. She knows you can, she'll, she'll just go to bat for you. Zebedee's sons, mom's going to bat for him. And, and I love the picture. She comes in and kneels before Jesus. You know, she's putting herself out there. And Jesus asks, what is it you want? She said, and how's this for a request? Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Now that's a mama for you, isn't it? Jesus, I know you got these 12 disciples, but let me tell you about my boys. You got the best right here. These are the ones you want. I mean, when you're going to be the ruler, when you're going to be in charge of everything, these are your people. These are the ones you got to have with you. And Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And then the amazing thing, they, meaning the sons and the mothers, they say, yes, we can. We can. I mean, that's, that's a whole thing right there. What is, what is Jesus saying to him? saying, I understand what's coming for me, and you don't. So what you think you're asking and what that would involve, you don't understand what that might require. Although, you know, that's the right answer, isn't it? Sure, we can do that, no problem. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Then when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. The others are just mad they didn't ask first. They didn't think they'd call their mama, right? Listen, mama, can you come and talk to Jesus with me? I don't know. They're, they're Why are they indignant? I, I do think there's some of that. Maybe they missed out. You mean all it took was asking? We want that too. And there's that desire we have in all of us to, to push ahead and to make something and to be somebody. And, and in that atmosphere, in response to that dynamic of, the sons of Zebedee and their mom making the request, and the other ten all but acknowledging, we wish we would have asked too, Jesus says this. He called them together. I want to talk to all of you now, the ones that have asked and the ones that wish they had, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, we live in a world where we are told we have to look out for our own interests. We have to to make sure that we stand up for ourselves. We have to be counted. We have to be noticed. We have to get out there. And Jesus says to his disciples, that is not how my kingdom works. That is not what is valued in my, my system. You've acknowledged me. You're following me. You have hopes for me as the Messiah. But what you think you're getting into isn't it. And what you'll find as you learn about my kingdom is that it kind of acts the opposite way of what you would expect. What you think is up is really down. And if you want to go up, you better learn to first lower yourself, humble yourself. And he says that, and he uses, and this is where I want to spend most of our time today, he uses an interesting title for himself in verse 28. He says, just as the Son of Man, did not come to be served. Now, I want you to know that term is loaded. We might just think Jesus is saying, and this is true, son of man, he is emphasizing that he's a a human being. And there are times in, in scripture where that phrase means just that. It means I'm a person, I'm a human, I'm the son of human beings, I'm a daughter, I live on this life physically. But in a Jewish culture to Jewish people, the term son of man has weight to it. It has a history to it that I think we'll see, and we're going to chase that for a few minutes and see what exactly that has in mind. And if we're going to chase it, we have to start in a place maybe you weren't expecting. We have to chase it in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel's a fascinating book, isn't it? Okay, you know, I feel like I've, I ought to be a teacher. Now, you've answered already. Somebody else in the class gets to answer this question, right? No. Daniel is an amazing book. It's a fascinating book. It's, it's got a, a, a historical component and a prophetic component. And chapter 7 is one of those prophetic places in the book of Daniel. And it starts with another vision, another prophecy of the different kingdoms, the four kingdoms in the world. We're going to get past that. We're going to jump down to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, because here's where we see the title in this section, the Son of Man, come up. And it says in verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was sealed, and the books were open. What a picture. The Ancient of Days, the the Eternal One, picture of God himself, taking his throne. I love the picture of the throne. I know some of you ladies took uh, Beth Moore's Daniel study, and she talks a lot about that. The, the throne is almost like a wheeled chariot, and it's the, the symbol of fire is one of judgment, fire coming out of it and flowing from it, and all this picture of the majesty of him. And I love the fact that he is seated. Now, there is always someone on the throne, and this is the most important thing I can say today. Are you ready? It's not you. There is one on the throne. 
In fact, just look at your neighbor and tell them, it's not you. And mean it. Now look to the other side. Now anybody have a mirror? Get that mirror out. That's the one you really have to talk to. It's not you. The Ancient of Days seated on the throne. This picture of judgment and righteousness, the books that will be opened. We know the the books that are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, the book of life and the book of, of all the deeds that have ever been done. This picture that God is going to open these books and has this account of every injustice that's ever been done in the history of the world, and he's going to set right everything that's been wrong throughout history. And that's the one who's seated on the throne. Now let's jump forward to verse 13, and it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, and here's going to be our phrase, was one like a son of man. And then listen to the description. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days, and he was led into his presence. And then listen to verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, all nations, men of every language worshipped him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The one like a son of man that comes into the picture is the picture of Jesus himself, and he is worthy to receive even the the worship of all of those, the thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands that have shown up verses before. He is the one who is given this place of authority, glory, and sovereign power. He is the one like a son of man coming on the clouds. You see the picture that Daniel paints that he sees in this vision of, of who not only God the Father is, but the place, the rightful place of Jesus the Son. Not only the Son of God, but this one like a Son of Man. How important is that image? Well, let's fast forward to Matthew again, this time a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 26, and we find Jesus being tried. Fascinating process leading up to that. The uh, leaders want him out of the picture. He's popular. He's, He's got a following. He's confronted them, made them look rather foolish a few times. They thought they had him, and every time, just when they thought they had him cornered, they asked that question. They found that loophole, and he somehow... Well, he's Jesus, right, somehow, whatever. He wiggles out, he gives the answer that they didn't expect, or he asks them a question they couldn't answer, and he's off again. And finally, they've got him, betrayed by one of his own followers, Judas, with a kiss, brought before them, and they are trying their best to come up with some charge against this this man who they can find very little. And so, basically, they bring in witnesses to lie about him. Anything they can do, if we can just get enough people to say the same lie enough times, it'll stick. But even those who were coming in to accuse him, brought with, they were contradicting each other. They just couldn't even get their story straight. And so in exasperation, the last one comes up and talks about, you said you'll destroy the temple, the centerpiece of Israel, and you'll rebuild it in three days. And in verse 62 of, of Matthew chapter 26, the high priest stood up and says to Jesus, so are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. So the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So that's what he asked. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? 
Now, we've been talking already about another phrase, the Son of Man. Listen to what Jesus says. He uses that other phrase. In fact, he almost quotes Daniel. He says, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He calls back this imagery from Daniel chapter 7 that, of course, the high priests of Israel would know intimately. They would have memorized it. They would have this messianic hope attached to it. And Jesus connects himself to that passage, and they know exactly what he's claiming. And so they, then the high priest, it says in verse 30, 35 or 65, tore his clothes and says he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Daniel sees a vision, and he sees one like a son of man. Jesus, before this trial, says, I am the son of God. And just to really hammer home that point, says, you'll see me like the son of man coming on the clouds. Fast forward a few more chapters to Acts chapter 7. And it tells us in Acts chapter 7 the story of Stephen the first Christian martyr, and he's preached a sermon, and he's angered the crowds, and they've decided there's only one thing to do with him, and that is to kill him in the most, well, crucifixion's pretty rough, but stoning would not be on my list of most wanted ways to die either. I mean, that's pretty rough. We're going to take you outside the city, all pick up rocks and throw them at you till you die. Not a good thing, and so they've cornered him. They found him in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 40, 54, excuse me, Scripture tells us this, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I love that. Can you hear that? Have you ever made so, somebody so mad they gnashed their teeth at you? <laughs> right? Wait till tomorrow night, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that's mad. When you have that kind of guttural reaction, they're furious, they gnash their teeth. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and guess who? The Son of Man. There it is. Okay, I was going to say, am I in the wrong spot? The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, in that moment, as he's given himself all that he has for his faith in Christ, after he's preached this sermon, after he's been confronted, what does he look up and see? But he sees Jesus. He sees the heavenly father. He sees the son, the, the son of man. What a vision that must have been. I think that's the final straw. If they were waiting for a reason to throw the stones, when he says this, after all that he'd already said, that was it. And then the stones begin to rain down. And of course, we learned there was somebody else hanging around there, right? This introduction to to Saul, who later became Paul. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He'll come back in just a minute. So Jesus has his disciples around him in Matthew chapter 20. And they've, they've said, listen, we want to be important. We want to know we're somebody. We want to know we've hitched our wagon to the right one. We want to know that what we've hoped about you will come true. And we want some guarantees. We want some assurances. We want to know when we get there, at least... Zebedee's sons and, and their mom and some of the others too. We want to know right and left hand that we're right there with you. That, that we're somebody. That what we've given up to follow you is going to be worth it one day. And Jesus says, that's not how things work here. That's not my kingdom. That's not the way 
we do it. Yeah, that's what you're used to. The, the Gentiles, that's exactly how they do it. But, but not so. Whoever wants to be great or first must be a servant, just like the Son of Man. Not just little old Jesus. Not just the guy they've seen and followed. Not just the miracle worker and the great teacher. No, just like the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We start there because that is an important thing that he says. Because here's what I'll suggest to you. You don't notice when just a regular old person that you expect to do something for you does it for you. How many of you have eaten out at a restaurant this week? That's fewer than I thought. How many of you have eaten out at a restaurant this year? Okay, i got to get there somehow. Yes. And you're at the restaurant, and maybe at some point in time, one of the wait staff comes to your table. And they take your order, and they bring your drinks, and they bring your food, and maybe you stick around on the table next to you, they've already finished, and one of the, the bus staff come, and they clean the table, right? They take away the, the plates and the things, and, all, and you probably don't think twice about it. You probably barely notice those things happening around you. Maybe you're seated where you can see into the kitchen, and as the wait staff is back and forth, or the bus staff is back and forth through the kitchen, you see into the kitchen, and in the kitchen there's a big sink or there's a dishwasher, and there's some people back there washing the dishes that they just took off the the table that was right beside you. And you probably don't think twice about that person in the kitchen washing the dishes, nor the person that took the dishes to the dishwasher, nor the person that brought the clean dishes to your plate with food on them. You don't think twice about it. Why? Because it's just sort of why you went to the restaurant, right? It's nice. It's a relief from having to do all those things yourself. But what if you were in that same restaurant? I got to pick somebody good, don't I? And, and, and maybe, okay, so let's do this. This is safe. You're in, no, that's not safe either. You're in a restaurant, and as you're there at your table looking at your menus, up walks, yeah, this will be safe. Kate Middleton. She's in Canada because we watched it on the iPad last night for hours. It was so exciting. <laughs> anyway, Kate Middleton walks up. She's got the little fascinator on. She's Prince William, England, his wife. It's okay. This is tough today. <laughs> it's hard. All that buildup. <laughs> so should I have just said Prince William? Maybe that would have been better. We'll go with Kate Middle and walk up and say, hi. Well, she would say it much nicer in that sweet British accent that I'm sure she has. Uh, may I take your drink order? You would probably notice. You'll probably go, what in the world is she working at this restaurant for taking my order? Why would you notice? Because she's royal. Yeah, I was going to try to find her title, but I can't remember what it is. She's princess or duchess or... 
Okay, now everybody knows who she is. A minute ago, you were looking at me like I'm crazy. Now, Duchess of Cambridge? Am I right? That's what we, why is she taking my order? What's going on here? This isn't, you might even think this isn't right or this isn't normal or I was, you, you would notice. Why? Because in your mind and what you've learned and with all that happens in our world, she's of a certain position and she's supposed to be waited on, not waiting on you. And so Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be waited on, but instead to serve others. And it had to stick. It had to make some impact on them because that's not how it's supposed to be. That's upside down. That's backwards. That's different. We hitched our wagon to you because you were the Messiah. And in our mind, the Messiah comes and liberates and rules. And you're saying that there's, there's a cup you have to drink. And I don't know, though they might not have understood what that was, they certainly had to know it was at least not a good thing, the way he said it. And now you're saying you came not to run things, but to be the servant told you we'd come back to the Apostle Paul, and Paul introduces himself. Actually, I want to do this differently. I'm going to back up for a minute. I'm going to use that video in just a second, guys, because I want to leave before we move to how Paul introduces himself. I found this. It's, it's old. Maybe some of you have seen it. I think it's kind of fun. I'm Steve Harvey of Miss Universe fame. Uh, used to do a comedy routine. I think they did a, a movie a few years back. Um, he was one of the, quote, kings of comedy. And as part of one of those videos, he introduces Jesus. So, so before we go on, I want us to, to, to watch this for just a second and let, let this idea kind of sink in a little bit. So whenever you guys are ready. If I had the pleasure of bringing out Christ, this is just how I would do it. It ain't got to be the way you do it. You might not think it's just right, but this is how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He has, out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He's fed by 
So, for the record, I know I'm not in a black church because all y'all just sitting there looking at me. <laughs> of course, I don't usually do it like that either, do I? <laughs> that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? You, you, you could, uh, well, there's that rhythm to what he did and, and there's that momentum that builds and, and I, I like how he ended it, the second coming. One day, that is how we will have to acknowledge Christ, that there will be no more ignoring or putting off or whatever the case may be. Now, it won't be maybe by the ways we would normally expect it, but at the, the second coming when things are set right, at that point, all that the disciples expected will be the reality. But when they came to him for his first coming, he said, no, you're, you're backwards. We're not there yet. You need to understand, I came not so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess this time. But I came to serve. Paul, who attended to the stoning of Stephen, who had the cloaks laid at his feet while that first Christian martyr was executed, later on the road to Damascus met the risen Jesus, and his life changed. He was a man that had all the credentials, every credential you could imagine. And in fact, at times in his, his letters, he would list them. He would tell you about his education, how he was trained by the best of the best. He was a Pharisee as to legalistic righteousness, flawless. If there was a law that we as Pharisees knew about, I kept it better than anybody. He talked about the links he had gone to in his life, his, his heritage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of here, and all this stuff he would list. Those would be the things that he would put out there front and center to say, this is why you should listen to me, we might think. And that would be what we would expect in our world, isn't it? I mean, if you get a flyer in the mail or an email or we talk about a conference at Church World, we usually want to talk about how great the people are that are going to get up front and lead it, whether it's through music or preaching or whatever the case may be. And we would look for those credentials, and Paul had all of them. Yet, often when he would write these letters, he would introduce himself in a different way. And in fact, I just want to look at one of those introductions, just a few 
quick words that start off probably the greatest of his letters, the book of Romans, the letter to the church at Rome. He starts off by introducing himself very simply, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, some translations say, a slave to Christ Jesus. Paul, other translations say, and this is an interesting word, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Why would he say that? What is that about? I'm so glad you asked. Because it's not just because he understood, on the one hand, how great Jesus was, that he deserves that we would serve him, but he also though he had all the credentials, understood what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And he drew on those very credentials to give himself that title, for lack of a better word. Because as a good Hebrew, as a good Jewish man who knew the scriptures, he understood the instructions of Exodus chapter 21. And in the Old Testament law, what there was a provision made. One of the, the biggest struggles of those folks, and maybe you say it's no different today, but debt in that day and time was the number one reason you would be enslaved to another. If you couldn't pay your debt, that was one way you could pay it. You would go and become the servant of somebody else. But because it was Israel and because God had a certain way that he did things with Israel, he laid out in the law provision so that if you gave yourself as a servant or as a slave to somebody to pay off a debt, there was always an end. And in Exodus 21, it says that period of time will be six years. And at the end of six years, the debt is considered paid and you're released from your service, whether it's you or whether it was your whole family that came in. Whoever went into service for that debt is released unless, now this is an interesting thing, Unless you want to voluntarily give yourself in service to that family. For whatever reason, maybe over the course of your repaying that debt, you had grown uh, in a relationship and love with that family. They had treated you in such a way that you can't imagine. Maybe you knew your own weakness and you knew if you were let out again, you'd just swipe that MasterCard and be right back in service in a few more years. I don't know how it would work, but nonetheless, you decided, I don't want to go free, I want to voluntarily give myself in service to you. And there's a procedure that you would go through. And it sounds painful. What you would do is you would go to your master and you would explain to them that you want to be a servant and you would, the master would then take you to the door of the house and he would take an awl, A-W-L, one of those sharp piercing instruments and some sort of mallet. And when that would happen, he would walk you to the door and he would place the awl on your earlobe and you would place your ear against the door and he would bang the awl through your ear into the door frame of his house. We're going to do that after the service just to show that everybody wants... Yeah. And that was the sign that you had willingly given yourself in service to that family. And Paul uses that image, that word. He says, I am a servant, a slave, a bondservant to Jesus Christ. I recognize who he is and what he has done for me, and so I willingly place myself in service to him. 
I'm willing even to be marked by that service to him because he is worthy to be the one that I would serve. Could you imagine if Jesus, when the sons of Zebedee came to him with mama, just reached down and pulled out a hammer and an awl and said, okay, let's do this. You know, would you be the first in line? No, never mind. It'd be a different kind of a thing. But you would know something about yourself if you were willing to do that. And you would acknowledge something about the person to whom you were pledging your life. And so when we think about what it means in our world to be somebody, when we think about the drive to be, I, I, I mentioned social media last week, and that might be the place where we see most of that put out there, where there's that, um, I know you, a lot of you are on Facebook, right? I'm looking at the average age of our congregation. Facebook, here's, here's a sad thing I learned. Facebook is for us older people. Did you know that? We took it over and the kiddos ran for the hills. The hills are called Instagram and Snapchat. That's how it works, right? I have, a, I have an amen in the front row or second row. A lot of the kids aren't even making eye contact. They're like, don't tell my parents about Instagram and Snapchat. What are you doing? Busted, right? But, but we, we have, and a lot of what I see on that is, is that kind of image that's out there and, and, I, and it, it, there's marketing that happens or all this we're pushing and even in church world there's that, that push that we do and I'm not saying we should just kind of just go run and hide but I'm saying we have to be careful that in our desire to be somebody or something we elevate ourselves to the point where the one who is worthy and who is given the glory and the sovereign power that Daniel tells us about, is somehow diminished, and he can even be made to hide in our shadow instead of us in his. Do we have to consider the example that he set? And we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at that, looking at particular instances how Jesus didn't just say to his disciples, listen, I've got an object, I've got a lesson for you, you need to learn and write down. He modeled it time and time and time again. And, and I say all this, and I start this process, because I want us today to grapple with the reality of who Jesus is. That he's not just our friend who sticks closer than a brother, though that's something we can know about him. He's certainly not, as the t-shirt once said, my homeboy. You didn't have that t-shirt? I thought I saw somebody wear that in here. No. He's not, you know, th that's the danger, the familiarity that we have with Jesus because he has revealed himself and because he has offered his grace and love to us can sometimes obscure, at least in our thinking, not in reality, the greatness of the one we call Savior. And so before we can go and look at his example, 
I think we need to remember who he is. Because it's only when we see him for who he is that when he gives his example, it becomes so striking. Because someone like him isn't supposed to be doing those things. Which makes me wonder how often in my life I think someone like me shouldn't have to do those things. Or you think, well, someone of my stature, someone of my position, someone of my education, whatever qualification you want to put, I shouldn't have to do those things. And then I remember Jesus, who said, the Son of Man, the one that comes in the clouds, the one that the Ancient of Days gives the place of honor, the one that Stephen saw exalted standing at the right hand of God, the Son of Man himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this moment, I thank you for the great gift of your Son. Lord, my prayer today is that for those of us in this room, we have been reminded of the position and of the person of Jesus Christ. That though we may feel familiar with you, we've not forgotten that you have all the authority and glory and sovereign power. That at your name one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That you will come with the clouds of heaven. In an unmistakable way. But also, Father, that you sent your son to serve. to serve us, to serve his disciples, to serve humanity when he took upon himself the sin of the world and died on the cross. And Lord, my prayer is today, if there was anyone here who does not know the lengths to which you went to demonstrate your love and to provide grace and forgiveness that today they've seen a glimpse of who you are and what you have done. Lord, remind us as your people, those who do know you, who have received your forgiveness, of that which you have not only called us to, but lived out by your example on this earth. Lord, help us to reorient our ways of thinking and living to the one who is the Son of Man, the one who came to serve and give his life. God, as we come to our time of response, our invitation, again, it is my prayer that you might call people to yourself, whether it be those who don't know you, we need to turn to you in faith for the first time, admit their sin, turn from their sin, acknowledge the gift and the the salvation that you alone offer and receive that from you, seeing Christ as Savior and Lord. 
or maybe, Lord, for us again who know you. That you would remind us of that place where we've gotten a little too caught up in our own reputation or position or pursuits that we've forgotten your call and your example. God, we give you these moments now, praying in Christ's name. Amen.